Welcome to this podcast from Harvest Community Church of Huntersville, North Carolina, where our vision is to make disciples who make disciples. I'm your host, Liz Stefanini. Bill worked as a prison chaplain, and one day he went in to visit prisoners, and after visiting a few, he decided to go out into the exercise yard to get some fresh air. He was out there, and a a young inmate walked up to him and said, Hey, mister, are you broke? And he started, you know, fumbling around in his pockets looking to see if he had some some money, some cash with him, and he and he didn't. And and the prisoner said, "No, I'm not. I'm not talking about that. Uh, your your money's no good in here." And this time he looked at him with tears in his eyes, and he said, "Are you broke? Because all of us in here are." said, Mr. Please don't come here trying to minister to people unless you also are broke. Empathy is a great thing. Not only in behind uh, the walls of a prison, but in all of life, because it's true that in some way, or maybe many ways, all of us are broken. It might be broken health, broken relationships, broken trust. But we're broken in many, many ways, and we we need a word from God. Some of you feel very broken this morning, and there is a good word from God for you. One of the one of the greatest things ever written about a person who is both empathetic and powerful is Hebrews chapter 4, verse 14 to 16. And I invite your attention there um, as we continue in the book of Hebrews. Uh, Each week at Harvest, we're teaching and preaching through this letter to, to the Hebrews, to They were Jewish Christians, some of the earliest Christians in the first century uh, coming out of a Jewish background. Hebrews chapter 4, verses 14 to 16. Therefore, since we have a great high priest who has ascended into heaven, Jesus the Son of God, Let us hold firmly to the faith we profess. For we do not have a high priest who is unable to empathize with our weaknesses. But we have one who has been tempted in every way, just as we are, yet he did not sin. Let us then approach God's throne of grace with confidence so that we may receive mercy and find grace to help us in our time of need. Now, let's set the stage here. The context of this passage, as you can see, it begins with the word therefore. And that therefore that begins this passage is drawing a conclusion from statements 
that have already been made in Hebrews about Jesus being a high priest. And it transitions, so it looks back to these statements, and it transitions into a section that that is uh, that elaborates on and applies Jesus' high priestly ministry to our Christian lives. That section includes not just the three verses that we're going to look at this morning, but actually much of the next several chapters in Hebrews. Now, the most recent place that we read about Jesus as high priest was at the beginning of chapter 3. So it's interesting because you take a word like therefore and you always want to ask, what is it pointing back to? And normally, most of the time, it's pointing back to something that that just happened in the passage. Well, in this case, I think it looks a little further back. Because at chapter 3, verse 1, the writer said, Therefore, holy brothers and sisters who share in the heavenly calling, fix your thoughts on Jesus, whom we acknowledge as our apostle and high priest. Now, watch how it goes. He mentions high priest, and then in describing who Jesus is, he takes the next six verses to talk about him being greater than Moses. Well, that leads him into a warning against unbelief because the people in Moses' day uh, lived in unbelief, even though they had the word. And that is followed with uh, a a section that we covered last Sunday on Sabbath rest. So you have high priest, then you have these warnings and this teaching, and then we come to verse 14, and you've got therefore. And I think there is a sense in which it looks to the verses immediately preceding it, but I think it really looks back to verse 1 of chapter 3 in light of the fact that we have this high priest. And it's going to make some awesome statements about our having a high priest, Jesus, the Son of God. That's what we're looking at. And this is on your outline sheet. If you're going to follow this along today, today we're going to, we're going to fill out this sentence. <laughs> what do we do? Because we have this great high priest. That's, that's what we're after. And, and the way this passage is structured, the way these three verses, there are two commands or two exhortations. The first one comes in verse 14, um, and it's to hold firmly to your faith. And then the second one comes in verse 16, and that is to approach God's throne. But in between them, uh, There's this little hinge verse, verse 15, and that elaborates on verse 14, and it shows what do I mean by this great high priest, and it gives the basis for it. But it also pushes us into verse 16 that gives us a second exhortation. So that's that's just a kind of high-level overview of what's happening in the verses. Let's let's walk through them and answer this question. How should we respond to Jesus? And the first thing we should do, there are two things we're going to do today in response to this. The first one is to hold firmly to our faith. That's verse 14. Therefore, since we have a great high priest who has ascended into heaven, Jesus the Son of God, let us hold firmly to the faith that we profess. The next few chapters in Hebrews 
are going to show us how great of a high priest Jesus is. Already in Hebrews, we've learned how great he is as the Son of God and how much greater he is than angel, greater than the prophets, greater than Moses. But we're really going to focus on how great he is as a high priest for a large section of the next few chapters in Hebrews. He can sympathize with us. Unlike the earthly high priest, he never sinned. His priesthood is eternal. He made a sin offering, not just an external offering, but by sacrificing his own body. And his sacrifice only had to be made one time instead of repeatedly. And now he has ascended into heaven. He has ascended into heaven. Now, the first readers of this were Jewish people, as I mentioned, and they would have been very familiar with priests in the Old Testament who went into the temple. And even one time a year, there was this special room, which I'll show you in a minute, the most holy place and only one priest the, the high priest could go in there just one time a year. So they were familiar with priests that would go into these places. Jesus didn't just go into an earthly tabernacle or an earthly temple. Jesus was ascended into heaven. This culminates everything about Jesus by Focusing on his exaltation. They lived on a human plane. He died. He lived a perfect life. He died. He was buried. He rose again. And then, boom, he goes to heaven. He walked on earth for 40 days. Hundreds of people saw him. He shared with his followers. And one day he was eating with them. And it just seemed probably to them to be like a normal day. And then he was telling them. Uh, some important truths and, and all of a sudden he was gone and he was gone to heaven. He is a great high priest. He has ascended into heaven. And what should we do in light of it? We should hold firmly to the faith we profess. You don't have faith in just an average person. <laughs> you don't have faith if you're a Christian in just one of many religious leaders, one of many religious options that you could choose. This is the great high priest, and he is ascended into heaven. Hold firmly is used 47 times, that word, in the New Testament. It's used in different contexts, uh, often of people who would grab someone or something and and hold firmly to it like Jesus in Mark chapter 1 and 9 grabbing the hand of a sick person or the women grabbing Jesus after they saw him resurrected in Matthew 28 or the lame man in Acts chapter 3 clinging to Peter and John. But here in Hebrews, it's not talking about a a physical grabbing or a physical clinging or physically holding firm onto something. It's, it's the hold of commitment. It's the hold of commitment. Mark chapter 7 uses this word of the Pharisees observing or holding firmly to the traditions of their fathers. 
And believers in Christ are called to hold to our traditions, not our traditions, but the traditions of the gospel. Second Thessalonians 2.15, brothers and sisters, stand firm and hold fast to the teachings we pass to you, whether by word of mouth or by letter. So this is what we're supposed to hold firm to. Because we have this great high priest, that's the first step. There's always a temptation to turn away from the faith. There's always a temptation in our world to turn to other things. And because we have this great high priest, we're called to hold firmly to that faith. It's to the faith we profess, or some translations will say, Hold to our confession. That is the word that's used there for confession or acknowledgement. And in Hebrews 3, 1, we had talked about that verse already. He is the apostle and high priest whom we confess. So this is what it means in the context of of Hebrews chapter 4. These readers had decided to start following Jesus. But then life got tough. Many of them lost their jobs. They lost their homes. They lost their families. Why? Because they had started to follow this man, Jesus. And they were tempted to turn back away from him in a full and final and decisive break away from Christ and Christianity. But rather than doing that, The author is trying to show them what a great high priest he is and how unwise it would be to give up on your profession of faith in him. And so the next verse, while, as I said, the next few chapters will elaborate, we come to verse 15. This verse itself also elaborates on the kind of high priest he is and why he's so great for we do not have a high priest who is unable to empathize with our weaknesses but we have one who has been tempted in every way just as we are yet he did not sin George Guthrie says, rather than being far removed from our human experience, the powerful, now exalted son has been in the thick of it. He knows what it is to live as a human being. He was fully God and fully human. He existed forever equal to God the Father, God the Son, God the Holy Spirit, and decided for those 33 years to come experience human life. He knows what our weaknesses are. You know, when you're talking to somebody and you've got a problem, whether it's a a formal counseling situation or maybe just an informal, casual you're, you're talking to friends or relatives or something about situations. Um, you want to talk to people that you feel like can understand what you're talking about, right? You want to talk to people that have empathy towards you. You don't want to go to someone who has no way of relating to you. And that's, that's what he's after here. 
He's a priest, yes. But the, the priests that they were familiar with were given by God and they were holy and they had a great role. But nobody necessarily thought that that priest would be able to be empathetic with them and at the same time sinless. That, that's what he's saying about Jesus in verse 15. That's what makes him so unique. He's not either empathetic or savior. <laughs> he is both. He, we do, a lot of negatives here, the way he says it. We do not have a high priest who is unable to empathize with our weaknesses. Jesus never sinned. We have one who has been tempted in every way, just as we are, yet he did not sin. Now, this does not mean that Jesus experienced every specific individual temptation. There are obviously temptations that exist today that didn't exist when he walked on the face of the earth. What it means is he experienced every type of temptation. Every type of temptation, though the Though the specifics of it may differ, it, it has a common element and a common thread. Jesus understands human weakness. So we might say what that prisoner was asking the prison chaplain, that Jesus could have said, yes, I, I understand what it means to be broken. I understand what it means to be rejected, to be lonely, to be tempted. To have the closest people to you turn their back on you. Jesus understands. He, he can sympathize. He can empathize with us. And that is, like I said, it, this verse uh, 15 is, is elaborating on what kind of great high priest he is. But it also springboards us into the next verse. And it gives us the reason... Uh, for another response to him. And that second response is approach him in prayer to give us the help we need. Verse 16. Let us then approach God's throne of grace with confidence so we may receive mercy and find grace to help us in time, in our time of need. You see that third verse? Not the third verse. This is the third verse. <laughs> That we talked about. See the third word in that verse, the word then. That is drawing a conclusion from what he's just said in verse 15. Because we have that kind of high priest who has never sinned and yet he can relate to us in our weaknesses, what should we do? Approach. Let us then approach. In other words, because Jesus is such a compassionate high priest, we can approach him. We can come to him. I'm sure we've all had situations where we were meeting somebody who had a position that was much higher than ours. That we, you maybe you entered with some trepidation. You entered with some uncertainty. You wondered whether you would really be heard. That's not the case here. These readers were Jewish, so they would have understood uh, 
what happened in uh, in the Old Testament worship sense, uh, system. They would understand who could come into the presence of God and who couldn't. So there was uh, there was this uh, tabernacle in the wilderness that became a permanent temple that Solomon built, and in this. There were different areas. Basically, you could divide it up into three. There was an outer court, and then there was an inner court, and then there was a most holy place. So that's the first arrow is pointing to the outer court where any Jewish person could come in, and there were various things that would happen there in that part of the temple. Then this points, that blue section in the middle, that's the... That's the inner court or what was called the holy place. And there are different elements that you can see that were part of that temple. But watch the third arrow. There's this one small area called the most holy place. There was a huge veil, huge curtain, very heavy curtain that separated that inside room where that room stood for the presence of God. Now, we know that God's presence is everywhere. But there at the Ark of the Covenant, that was Israel's object lesson, as it were, for this is where God reveals himself. This is where God is. And I already alluded to it earlier. You couldn't just decide, you know what, let's go see God today. <laughs> Let's go talk to God today. I, I really feel like I need God today. And I would like to just march into that most holy place and just sit there near the Ark of the Covenant and just take in some of the, some of the atmosphere. Couldn't do it. In fact, even the priests who lived and ministered for the temple and tabernacle, they couldn't do it. Only, only one. Only the most high priest, only one time a year, could go in there. And while he was in there, he had this robe with bells and pomegranates on it, and he had to keep moving. He couldn't stop. It was, that's how sacred, that's how special the presence of God is. And God gave Israel this this object lesson, this visual representation of it. So for people who had grown up their whole life understanding this system, now he looks at them and says, you know what? You've got a high priest, not just a high priest. You have a great high priest. You have one that has ascended into heaven. You have one that can understand you, that's sympathetic. He was tempted just like you are. He experienced all of your weaknesses. He knows what it's like, but he didn't sin. And in light of that, come approach him. It's in the present tense in the original, that that verb approach. In other words, the idea is keep on approaching, keep on approaching, keep on coming to God. Keep on coming to God. Are you weak? Keep on coming to God. Are you tempted? Keep on coming to God. Are you hurting? Keep on coming to God. Are you uncertain? Keep on coming to God. Keep on approaching God. That's what this passage is talking about. And where are we approaching? What are we approaching? God's 
throne of grace. So I'm going to put one word up on the screen. I want you to take like a minute or so to just turn to a person or two around you and talk about what images come to your mind when you see this word. There's the word throne. Take it a minute or so and talk to somebody. So you're probably thinking and talking about royalty, about splendor. You're thinking about a place that's not very accessible. It's not a place that the average commoner can go to, right? Thrones were uh, elevated ceremonial chairs. They were high in the ancient world. And the height signified the dignity and authority and majesty of the person who sat on it. In Old Testament times, kings sat on thrones like the Pharaoh of Egypt and the kings of Assyria and Babylon. In Israel, Solomon prepared a great throne that was inlaid with ivory and overlaid with pure gold. The term throne came to symbolize kingship. And it became equivalent in meaning to the kingdom itself. So, for instance, Mary was promised that Jesus will occupy David's throne forever. And the 12 apostles are going to reign with Jesus. They're going to sit on 12 thrones judging in the coming world. Revelation 4 and 5 focuses on God who alone sits on the throne The final judgment is going to come from one who sits on a great white throne, according to Revelation. So now, let me put another word up. And you turn to somebody beside you and talk about what images come to your mind here with the word grace. So did... Did that conjure up different images for you than throne did? <laughs> it most likely it did, and it certainly should have, right? Grace is unmerited favor. Grace is something we don't deserve. So think about it. God is the ruler of all. God sits on this great throne over all. No one is like him. He lives in absolute splendor and light on a throne, but this writer puts those words together. It's a throne of grace. It is a throne of grace. That changes everything. I love the juxtaposition of those two words, throne and grace. His throne speaks to his authority and the fact that he has more ability than anybody in the universe to have the power of help to help us. But the fact that it's a throne of grace reminds us of his desire to receive us and to give us what we need, even if we don't feel worthy, even if we don't feel close to him, even if we sin. It's a throne of grace. And it's there for us. People pray for a lot of different reasons. Some people pray out of obligation. Some people pray thinking that's what you do. That's the religious thing. Or maybe I can accomplish this by doing it or this or that. 
There are a lot of different reasons to pray, some good reasons, some not so good reasons. Here's a great reason to pray, because God is gracious. Because he has a throne of grace. And he invites us to keep coming to him. And that is why we can pray with confidence. There's the confidence or the bold frankness as this word could be translated. We have someone who has invited us into that throne room. And what happens there so that we may receive mercy and find grace to help us in our time of need. I think about Jesus in the Garden of Gethsemane. He knew why he had come to this earth, but it was a time of need for him. And he prayed. He prayed. He, he, he could hardly bear the fact of his having to take on sin. For him, the perfect eternal son of God being made sin. And so he said, Lord, Father, take this cup away from me. But nevertheless, your will be done. He didn't back out. He didn't quit. He didn't stop. The people, the the original readers, they were being tempted to stop, to turn back. And the the author saying, wait a minute, remember your Savior. Remember it's a throne of grace. Find help in your time of need. We all have different times of need. And I want you to know, if you're a Christian today, if you have come to a personal relationship with God through faith in Jesus Christ, and that's how you become a Christian, not by joining a church or being baptized or turning over a new leaf or any outward religious thing. The the way you become a Christian is you realize, I am not a Christian. I am not okay with God. I'm wrong. I'm walking down the wrong path. I've sinned, but I have a Savior. I have someone who died for me, someone who paid my sin cost, not just anyone, but the very son of God did that for me. And I believe it. And I will turn to him in faith and believe in him and put my hope for eternity in him and him alone. That's what repentance and faith are. That's what that act is. And if you have done that, if you haven't done that, I plead with you today, don't walk out of here without doing that. But if you have done that and you are a Christian, remember today, you have a high priest. You have someone who knows you. Your friends may not know everything about you. Your elder may not know everything about you. Your community group leader, your pastor. But God knows everything about you. And he is your priest. He is there for you. And he empathizes with you. And he's powerful enough to do something about it. So here's God's word for us this morning. It's. Because we have a great high priest in Jesus, we should keep going in our faith and keep coming to God in prayer. The title of this sermon is Coming and Going. And that's what it's about. It's about coming to God in prayer and about going on in our faith. Because we have this great high priest, keep going in your faith and keep coming to God in prayer. So here's how I would... 
encourage you to apply this word this morning. Here's how you can put it into practice. All of them start with P, profess faith. You don't have to carry your sins for all by yourself. There is a Savior who died for you to carry them. These people who were the original readers, they had already professed their faith in Christ. If you're not there yet, that's the place to start. Secondly, persevere. That's what he's calling them to do. That's what God calls us to do, to persevere in that faith, to keep believing in him, and then to pray. Are you tempted? Don't beat yourself up. Don't despair, but pray. Are you weak? Don't be surprised. <laughs> pray. Are you in need? Is there, a, is there a sin that you can't overcome? Is there a relationship that you can't heal? Is there a perplexing situation that you can't shake? Pray. Because we have a great high priest in Jesus, we should keep going in our faith and keep coming to God in prayer. Andrew Bonar was a 19th century Scottish minister who was known for living a devout and holy life. He came to America and he was doing a conference in Massachusetts and the famous D.L. Moody was hosting at that conference. And he said to Bonar in front of the, 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 the crowd, these people want to know about this victorious Christian life that you've been preaching about and talking about. Tell us your experience. And Bonar said this. He hesitated for a minute. And he said this. I don't like to speak about myself very much. But I do know this. For 50 years, I have had access to the throne of grace. Brothers and sisters, so do we. <laughs> so do we. Thanks again for joining us today from Harvest Community Church. This podcast is also available on our website, harvestcharlotte.com. Please go there if you want to send a question or comment, learn more about our ministries, or find out how you can donate to support the podcast.